Bible Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad we can be together. If you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning uh, a study of scripture that you may be doing on your own or a personal issue in your life that you're looking for biblical counsel on or a ministry challenge. Those are the kinds of questions we field here each week on the Bible line. There's several ways you can contact us uh, toll free at 877 uh, the call letters WAGP 980. So the 877 number is WAGP 980 or 843 525 1859. The 843 number is 525 1859. You can also email us uh, directly here into the studio to the screen that Rick has in front of him, and that's TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Now, when you call, you are welcome to go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb. Uh, and we try to give uh, both of those priority over a lot of the email questions that come in. But anyway, with that said, we, we've got a ton of questions that have already come in. So we're going to, I think, start with those. Okay. We uh, started, uh, we're starting with one that came in at the tail end of last week from Linda in Rink. And she would like you to please explain 1 Timothy 2.12. Uh, we know you've got many messages on this subject. So could you suggest some that she could listen to and uh, could you please give an explanation of what the scripture is saying? Well, it, it's an important question in the day that we live in because unfortunately there's a lot of confusion on the roles that men and women play in both the home and in the church. And uh, these uh, terms that distinguish two major positions are called complementarianism and egalitarianism. Complementarianism, which I think represents the biblical view says that men and women are equal before God, but they have different roles in both the home and in the church. Uh, the egalitarian view says men and women are equal. They are so equal that they can play the same role in either the home or the church. Occasionally you will have someone who is complementarian in the home because they can't seem to argue away the passages that teach male headship in the home but they are egalitarian in the church. They would say, well, women can be pastors and they can do anything that a man does. And so we're seeing this lived out. Uh, Bill Hybels, who just stepped down from Willow Creek, unfortunately due to failure of one kind or another, though he was planning to retire anyway, he had already uh, chosen his successor. And so his senior successor is a woman. And uh, they also have a man who's a teaching pastor. But that's against biblical design. Uh, that's not God's way. And unfortunately, when we um, dismiss God's ways, we bring trouble into the church. 
So the scripture says here in first Timothy two twelve to answer your question, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now her quietness, so to speak, is certainly a qualified silence, just as it is in first Corinthians where he says a woman should not speak in church. It's qualified because he had just said prior to that, that a woman could pray or prophesy in church prophesying in church today would be an equivalent to reading a passage of scripture. Um, so a woman can do that. She can sing in church. She's commanded to sing in church. She can teach women in the church. She can teach children in the church, but she's not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. Is it because they are not capable? Um, there are some women that I've heard that are better preachers than a lot of men. I know doesn't have anything to do with capability or intelligence or spirituality has everything to do with roles. Just like in the home, the man is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Yet even Christ submits to the father. And so the lady, the wife is called to submit to her husband's authority In the home. Uh, you have a model. You can't have two heads or you have a monster. You can't have no head or it's dead. You have to have a leader and it's in the home. Of course, where children learn to respect authority. Uh, they see it modeled between their dad and their mom. And when you dismiss that, when a woman runs the home and she does not submit to her husband's authority, then you're really setting your children up for problems. One for rebellion. Um, look, mom doesn't listen to dad. Why should I listen to authority? Uh, so there's clear authoritative lines that God has dictated in his word. And we're not smarter than God. Listen, for 1900 years plus of church history, no one disputed that. No one said, well, you know, the woman, she's also the head of the home. No, that's not what the scripture says. And another major problem is you tend to make boys effeminate. When a man usurps his authority, you make the child effeminate. You don't want to make your son effeminate. You want him to be a man. And when you make them effeminate, you set them up for children to make fun of them. And then they begin to question their masculinity. And there's always a connection in both the church and the home when women take the role of a man. And it's very, very sad in these liberal mainline denominations. They have all these kids who are turning out gay at a far higher rate than in evangelicalism. There are other sources and means I think that can contribute to a person choosing a gay lifestyle. Look, it's sinful no matter what. Uh, and even where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God is in the business of changing lives, but it's profoundly high in the liberal mainline denominations because of the role that women play. And unfortunately, um, God is clear here. A woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So God one takes us back to the order of creation. Someone can't say, well, we're new creatures in Christ. And therefore um, one verse that they love to use out of context to be able to justify uh, women having the same role as men and women's is found, women is found in the book of Galatians. And uh, there, of course, Paul is speaking about spiritual blessings that we share. He's not dealing with the roles that men and women play in the church. And this verse that people use, they use it to justify everything from women pastors to um, the homosexual lifestyle. It's just used across the board. 
And it's, it's very sad how you can take a verse of scripture and you can take it out of context. And um, when Paul says there is neither male nor female, um, let me read the whole thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He is affirming that we have access to the same spiritual blessings, whether we are a first century slave or whether we are a free man, whether we are a Jew, a member of God's uh, chosen people, or whether we are a non-Jew, a Greek, whether we are male or female, we all share in the same spiritual blessings. And so he's not speaking to the subject of roles in that passage. So it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Why was Eve created? God said, I'm going to make you a helper suitable. She, in many ways, is like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't play a self-promoting role. He comes alongside and in a quiet way, he lifts up Christ. He gets people to... um, Look at Jesus, not at himself, but at Christ. And even so, the wife comes alongside and she plays that complementary role. And then he says, that's the first reason. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Oh, that sounds really sexist, Paul. It's not. He's just reminding them how the fall took place. Eve stepped out of her role And she usurped her husband's authority. And because of that, she was deceived. Now, did Adam sin? He wasn't. Adam wasn't deceived. He sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he's doing. His sin was a greater sin. But when we step out of our roles, we open ourselves up to deception. And I think it's interesting. Not all cults, but a high percentage of cults have been started by women. Uh, And then he says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he, he brings it to a higher level. He's not just saying what women can't do, but he's affirming what God has called women to do. Look, a mom staying at home and raising her children is no insignificant thing. It's highly significant. It's critically important to shape the next generation. And so we've forsaken God's ways. We're letting someone else raise the children. We are, uh, look, if you're a pastor of a church and you're a woman, there's no way if you have children that you can raise those children in a godly fashion. It's impossible. It is impossible. You are, if you're going to really serve as a pastor and do a pastor's job. Um, So the role uh, that a a woman plays is so significant. But, you know, we've got people like Beth Moore. God bless her. I'm glad she has the gospel. We're going to meet her in heaven someday. But the whole fabric of women's ministry that she has portrayed and Kay Arthur changed her view on women's ministry about 20 years ago. And so we dropped Kay Arthur at Community Bible Church and a lot of women's ministries. You know, you go to a, a Beth Moore conference and the women leave it saying, not I, I want to be a better mom and raise my kids. No, they leave it saying, I, I, I want to be a, a well-known woman who has a platform and maybe even travel the country and speak. Look, that that's not God's plan for a godly woman in the process of forsaking her home. It's not that a woman couldn't speak in some foreign nation or anything else, but if she's doing that at the expense of her children, 
hey, look, I'm not even going to get into it, but I could start naming women who are highly esteemed in American Christianity. And if you pulled back the veneer, if you knew what I knew about their kids, you'd say, I don't know that I want that end product. So think through carefully. God's ways are not man's ways. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. So you ask for some sermons. There are two messages that I gave on really three, if you want to back it up all the way to, um, you know, verse eight. But if you go to search the scriptures.org, you click on resources and then you click on sermons and type in first Timothy two, you will see the messages that I preached to that the last two in this chapter highly focus on all of the passages, not just in first Timothy, but I go through every single passage in the Bible that the Christian feminist is using to dismiss the distinction in roles. Well, you know, Deborah, she was a preacher. Oh, the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, she was a career woman and on and on we could go. All oh, the seven daughters of uh, Philip, the evangelist, you know, they were, they were obviously preachers and, and we go back and we look at each of the verses very carefully in their context. And you discover that there are no contradictions in God's word that he has placed a very, very important role for the mom. And we are not to write that off in older women who have failed. That role are to teach sometimes from their error. And some of them are afraid to do that. They're afraid to teach the next generation of women as to what they should be like. He's going to talk about in a few chapters later in first Timothy of five of, of, um, of widows that the church should esteem. And when you put that together with Titus two, you, you see, Hey, the, the role of women in the church is very different from what American evangelicalism is uh, creating. And again, if you want what now I sadly say the average evangelical family has, then adopt what all these churches are doing. Just do what they're doing. You want kids who, you know, Josh McDowell's right. And he says 80% of evangelical kids are walking away from Christianity. Just, just do what they're doing and you'll get it. You'll get it guaranteed. And, um, you don't want to do that though. You want to do it God's way. And again, this sounds so incredibly foreign and narrow on the day we live in, but you think it through. Um, and if someone's listening and you're arguing in your mind with me, go back and listen to those sermons that I preached in first Timothy too. And you are welcome to write me and uh, shoot me an email and I would be happy to discuss it with you. All right, let's go to the next question. And you can find those messages at searchthescriptures.org and you can also find a link to email Pastor Brogy. Adriana from Naples, Florida writes, I have a friend who is a new born again believer and mentioned to me that they are thinking about getting inner healing and wanted my opinion on it. Although I'd not heard of this term before, I looked into it a little and it seemed very new age and occult to me. I just wanted to know your take on inner healing and its practice being used in the Christian community. And how do I explain with scripture on its use not being necessary? Well, it's a good question. The inner healing movement is not new. It's just given different titles at different times in the history of the church. But Satan is so slick. And so, oh, you know, inner healing, that sounds good. You know, why wouldn't we want that in our local church? And it comes under, you know, different titles and you know, prayer journeys and all kinds of things. But basically what the focus is, is you go through past problems in your life 
and you use these prayer journeys that include mysticism and all kinds of techniques that are anti-God and anti-biblical. They're really mystical new age techniques. And they ask the recipient to think about the harm that they experienced and the hurt and the anger that they feel. And then you're supposed to basically put an image of God in your mind and, um, and allow him to walk you through that problem. Well, again, if that were a methodology that the scriptures revealed, then I would be saying that's what you should be doing. But that's not what God tells us to do. Number one, we're, we're not called to even create an image of God in our life, in our minds. Um, and the solution to problems is not to dwell on them. It's not to focus on our past. And, uh, you know, that tends to have a very negative effect. Uh, the, the methodology that God gives is that we are to walk in newness of life. How? Through the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So in my humble judgment, some of these Christians who have adopted this inner healing thing and brought it into their churches, they're walking into new age methodology and really even into the realm of the demonic. It's very, very clear that this is not a method that's outlined in scripture. So if they take you through the three steps, we'll say, well, give me a biblical basis for this. Show me, show me where God's word teaches that I am to remember my past and my hurtful situations. And then I'm supposed to visualize Jesus being with me at that moment. Show me where it says that in scripture. And so, but what we're really saying today is what's being said in so many different ways is that the word of God is not sufficient. Um, and so instead of causing people to focus on the sovereignty of God and getting people to rethink through how he, uh, can, allow his grace to abound where sin abounds. We're getting people to focus on self and we're using tech techniques that we are opening uh, ourselves up into new age practices. So it's very dangerous, very, very, you know, channeling prayer, all these different things. They're, they're very, very dangerous techniques that are not founded anywhere in scripture. Look, good rule of thumb. If it's new, it's not true. And these are all new methodologies. They're, they're captured under different titles. They go back centuries, but you don't find them rooted in scripture. And so now we're told the evangelical church has been in ignorance and we need to uh, utilize some of these new methods in order to, you know, bring healing and emotional stability to people's lives and the old methods of just teaching the word of God and meditating on scripture and renewing your mind and studying God's character. That just doesn't work. We live in too complex a culture. That's, that's what they're selling us. And it's very dangerous. Well, while we're on that uh, semi similar subject, Michael from Rinkin would like you to please give the scripture that talks about not going to fortune tellers or psychics. Well, there's a lot of scripture that deals with this and, uh, this is a question that comes up every once in a while on the Bible line. I'd point you to Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 20. Those are two central passages that Moses specifically condemns spiritism, mediums, the occult, psychic, uh, and by application, you could say horoscopes, tarot cards, astrology, fortune tellers, palm readers, seances. Those are all things that are evil. And God, of course, uh, tells us, 
in the New Testament that demons can work behind these things. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, the Bible warns us of, of spirits. Uh, there are different kinds of spirits in the Bible. There is holy, the Holy Spirit, but I mean, in terms of spirit creatures, there's holy angels and there's fallen angels. And so, of course, sometimes people are, you know, won over by a psychic and look, this goes across educational realms, uh, societal status. And Nancy Reagan used to visit on a weekly basis, her psychic to uh, get information, to know how she should help her husband, who is the president of the United States. I thank God that Ronald Reagan had a lot of Christians who were bending his ear and he listened to them rather than to his wife. But the scripture warns that the demonic real world is very uh, real, that everything that is spiritual is not spiritually correct. And so in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 18, God says, don't do these things. You're opening your life up to the demonic realm. Now, someone says, well, I went to a fortune teller and they knew so much about me. Well, some of them can find out a whole lot about you by going to your Facebook page and they can uh, learn names and uh, you know, I, I think you have a son and, you know, and they, all, everything they tell you is right off of your Facebook page and they're very crafty and slick, but some of them are communicating with demons. How is it that the Los Angeles police department will use mediums to help solve murders and successfully in a number of cases for the simple reason that the person they go to is in tune with the demonic. Remember, Satan comes to kill destroy and to steal. Now I'm not saying that all murders are dem demonically inspired, but some murders have demons behind them and people who are into the demonic realm. And so if a fortune teller or a psychic is in tune with the demonic realm, then they can say, well, here's how it took place. Why? Because a demon was behind it and they're communicating with demons. If you remember, I preached a sermon not long ago in Acts 16, where there was a, a woman who was a psychic of sorts and, you know, she was demon possessed. And so there are people who are literally demon possessed and the devil, he always packages himself in a kind way. He, he pretends to be kind and helpful. He tries to appear to be something good. And Satan and his demons who are working with psychics will give a psychic, you know, information about a person in order to get that person hooked on spiritism. And that's, again, very, very dangerous. Paul, I mean, Peter says in first Peter five, eight, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is a deceiver. He's a liar and he wants to destroy your life. So you don't want to play around with the occult. This is not some small thing. This is a very, very dangerous thing. And there are people, I, I remember in a church, a Baptist church I was in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And there was a girl who attended the church and she literally was demon possessed. And the history of her demon possession actually went back to the Ouija board. And she got involved in the occult through the Ouija board. When I was a campus pastor at Duke University, there was a club on the campus called Dungeons and Dragons. And these were people who were entering into the demonic realm. It's a very evil thing. And I'm sure it's gotten a lot more evil since I was a campus pastor there uh, in the 1980s. 
but I'll tell you, I would walk through the campus sometimes and I would see some of these club members and they would just curse me and they would swear at me. One time we showed up for our weekly meeting and the whole room was covered with hateful posters and uh, ugly sayings and swear words and threats and everything else. The Dungeons and Dragons group did this. So there's a, Satan is very, very slick and uh, we as parents need to be on top of what our children are doing on the internet. Satan is using this as a tool uh, to get people into all kinds of evil, including the occult. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. Very good. Uh, Christy from Fredericksburg, Virginia writes, My friend recently left a church over an issue that had to do with their belief in a universal church versus a local church. She said the pastor followed a form of landmarkism. She explained her view. However, I was wondering what your view on this is, as I'm still not sure what it all means. I'm sure your church may fall under one of these two categories. Well, uh, landmarkism, as it's called, goes back to the 1850s. It it came out of the independent Baptist church movement. And I'm in saying this, believe me, not all independent Baptist congregations ascribe to landmarkism. In fact, I'd say that most of them do not. But there is a certain segment within the independent Baptist church movement that have embraced it. And so their argument basically is that they can trace their spiritual lineage all the way back to the New Testament church. And they often argue there are different segments of landmarkism, just like there are different denominations and over 250 Baptist denominations in the country. Uh, So there's some, you know, I'm not saying everything I'm saying about landmarkism is true of every landmark church, but it's generally true, though there may be some fine tweaks where some have held a slightly different position. But generally speaking, across the board, they would say, well, what makes us a landmark Baptist, and it's in the Baptist movement, is that uh, we can trace our lineage all the way back to Uh, John the Baptist. And so therefore they're really saying that they are the true church. And they would say, by the way, that the only true church is a local church, namely a local Baptist church, namely a local Baptist church of landmark believers. And there's no such thing as the universal body of Christ. Now the group, when it started, it had some good and valid points. I think just like many times when a group begins, Uh, They were dealing with the liberalism of their day where there were open pulpits and people came into pulpits and they were denying the deity of Jesus or the authority of the word of God. And and they said, well, we need to get together and we need to think our way, you know, through what we're going to accept and what we don't accept. And when we separate from false brethren, because the Bible does teach separation, but like some things, their separation got so highly specific that they could fellowship with no one except the landmark Baptist. And somehow they knew that they were the original descendants of John the Baptist in the early church movement. And of course, the, the term itself comes from Proverbs, you know, don't remove the ancient landmark, which your fathers have set. And they would say that um, that in essence is what has happened in the church, those who are not landmark Baptists. But there's a number of verses that they use out of context. Um, Number one, let me just say that God doesn't 
dismiss the universal church. There are many passages in the Bible that speak obviously to the local church. In fact, the majority of the passages where you see the word church, it refers to local church, but not always. Sometimes it's actually use of a group of unbelievers. The word is ecclesia, called out ones. It, the word uh, is used of a mob. We translate it as a mob um, in most of our English Bibles, but in many languages of the world, they just translate it with the same word, ecclesia or church or whatever it might be in their receptor tongue, and they let you figure it out. But there's a certain amount of translation or interpretation that goes on sometimes when we recognize, well, this is not the typical use of the word. And, but, but my point is it's not even always in reference to believers, the word ecclesia. Sometimes it's used like of a mob that wants to you know, beat up on the apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, but very often the term church is used of the universal church when Christ, you know, love the church. Well, what, uh, what community Bible church or, uh, so-and-so Baptist church or so-and-so Presbyterian church. No, he's talking about the universal body of Christ. So the, the church is not just a local body. It, it's a, it's a worldwide entity as Ephesians one clearly affirms and we can't dismiss that. So landmark baptism, landmark Baptist, it's very cultish. I don't know how to say it without being mean, but it is. It's very cultish. And some of them have the gospel. But when, but when you say that, you know, like here, here's some of the extremes they go. They say, well, we're, we're the true bride of Christ. We're the true church. And some of these other people who they can't deny are born again. They'll say, they say, well, they won't be at, they'll be at the marriage supper of the lamb, but not as the bride of Christ, just landmark Baptist. Well, they'll be serving us. You know, I mean, just some really bizarre doctrines. Like, where do you get this friend? Like, are you reading the same Bible again? If it's new, it's not true. And it's a, it's a form of extremism that has no biblical justification and any thinking person who would just read the word of God for himself would soon see that this is really not what the new Testament is teaching. So I would say to this person, where are they writing from? Fredericksburg, Virginia. Yeah. I would say, you know, okay. Um, I would keep away from that church. It's just not healthy. And so, you know, immediately they've written off as second class citizens, Anyone who's not even a Baptist, they've written off virtually all Baptist denominations except landmark Baptists. Look, we've got Presbyterian brethren, born again people. Um, do I believe in their pedo baptism view, infant baptism? No, of course not. But there are brethren and we'll meet them in heaven. Uh, they love the Lord. Not all Presbyterians do, just like all Baptists aren't saved either. Uh, but Look, they're part of the body of Christ, community of Bible church. What are we? Well, we're not a Baptist church. We're not a, we're non-denominational church. Well, I guess we'll just be serving the landmark Baptist at the marriage supper of the lamb. But it's so it's very cultish. And I would just encourage you as your brother in Christ and as a pastor to stay away from it. Very good. Gerald from Walterboro, South Carolina, right up the road here says, should churches vote on such things as the budget, leadership, construction projects, etc.? I don't find voting in the Bible. A lot of churches use Robert's Rules of Order to maintain a certain democratic behavior among God's people. For some reason, this doesn't sit well with me. Your thoughts? Well, you're asking really what we call a church polity issue. How does God organize his local assembly? 
how does leadership function in the local church? And so there are degrees on the spectrum of from one far end, you might have congregationalism where people vote on everything. I mean, right down to, look, I was in a church meeting years ago and there was a fight over the color of the rugs when I was a relatively new Christian. What color were we going to replace the church sanctuary rugs with? Uh, That's what they were voting on. And I remember in that meeting, I'll never forget it, that a lot of the discussion was over the Roberts Rules of Order. I thought, who is this guy? He ought to be shot. You know, I mean, who is this guy? Roberts Rules of Order. And look, you're out of order. And on page 27 of the Roberts Rules, it says this. And, you know, okay, God is a God of order, but we don't have any mandate that we need to adopt the Roberts Rules of Order as some churches have in the past and orchestrating how they function at a church business meeting. Look, if a church grows at some point, you have to delegate some authority. And so that's why I say you've got degrees even of congregationalism. So on one end, you have pure congregationalism where every member has an equal say. What's the problem with that? Well, the biggest problem is it dismisses that God has given people to rule in the church, that the church is not an American democracy, that the church is to be led by leaders. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 5 of elders who rule well. Um, They have a ruling decision-making authority that God gives them. And this is why it's essential that uh, we, uh, as local churches, when leaders are selected, that they're truly qualified. And unfortunately, that's where a church often stands or falls, is they're selecting leaders who are not qualified. When Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. That doesn't sound very democratic to me. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's what God says. Why? Because he has given authority to men in the church. The leaders that he speaks of the office of elder can only be filled by a man. Uh, There are male qualifications. We just saw in our first question today, someone asked me to explain 1 Timothy 2.12, that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And we looked at the three reasons Paul gave. And then remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Then he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he does. And then he says, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So again, very specifically, He is telling us what men who lead, who serve in the office of elder and the word elder, bishop, pastor, overseer is used of the same office interchangeably in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Titus chapter one, Titus is left on the island of Crete. And one of the jobs that he has for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children, then he says, for the overseer must be. 
So first, he uses the word elder in verse 5. And then in verse 7, he uses a different Greek word for the overseer. The Old English says for the bishop. So he uses the word presbyteros in the verse, verb, uh, ver, noun episkopos. We get our word Presbyterian and Episcopal from them. So again, those are appointed offices. They need to be people who are truly qualified. And like in the passage in 1 Timothy 3, these are not qualifications a woman can meet. You tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, and I'll tell you how she can be a pastor of a church. She can't be. Again, is this a put down on women? No. Not at all. God esteems women. There are some things that only women can do in the local assembly that men cannot do. For instance, going on in Titus, he speaks about, you know, different kinds of people that were in the first century church. And you could certainly make application in a number of realms today in terms of how it would parallel and so he, he's exhorted by Paul, speak for the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, older women. Uh, then he'll speak of um, young men and, and uh, bond slaves. And all the way through, he says, Timothy, you teach the older men. Timothy, you teach the older women. Timothy, you teach the young men. Timothy, I mean, Titus, you teach the, the bond slaves. But don't you, Titus teach the young women. Why? Because that's something only older women can do in the church because we've ignored that. And, you know, men are in these discipleship relationships and we've just seen the crash with a mega church pastor. That's exactly what he did. He took the role of an older woman and now his mega church, you know, has been stained and soiled. It was already stained and soiled in my view because he was egalitarian. He had created a seeker sensitive model that was antithetical to the word of God and how a church is supposed to do church, that the scriptures are sufficient, that we don't need to have skits, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with the skit or all this other hoopla in very little Bible um, he taught the church a methodology that has helped to destroy the evangelical church that has made the evangelical church open to all this error. Why? Because people don't know their Bibles anymore. They're not taught the word of God. And yet, you know, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That's what you're supposed to do. You are to preach the word. That was the motto of Dallas seminary where I went preach the word. Uh, that's, that's what we are supposed to do as pastors. A lot of things I could do that people will want me to do, but we are to preach the word. But here's the point is that there's male leadership in the church and the male leadership is to rule. Look, when you have a pure congregationalism or high degrees of congregationalism, you have set the church up for disaster. Think about it. You're giving everyone an equal say. You're giving new Christians. You're giving people who've been Christians a long time, but they've remained baby Christians. And if Dr. Graham was right, he put it at over 90% of the true born again Christians in the American church had never grown, just stayed baby Christians their whole life. You've got new Christians, baby Christians, carnal Christians, people who are just out of fellowship with the Lord, but they're members. And it's amazing how they come out of the woodwork when there's some big church fight or something that needs to be voted on. People you haven't seen it forever. They're there at the church business meeting to make sure their vote is heard. 
And then you have mature Christians, godly people. And then in every church, there are non-Christians. Why? Because Jesus said the wheat and the tare would be mixed together. They know all the right words. They would say, Jesus is my savior, that you're saved by grace through faith. And they know all the words, but they're tares. They know it in their head, but they've never embraced it in their hearts. And of course, Jude deals with this. He calls these people in uh, his one chapter book, devoid of the spirit. Um, And he says, these are the ones who cause divisions. That's what they do. They cause divisions in the local assembly. And so if that's true, you can see the wisdom of God in terms of why he doesn't want everyone having an equal vote. Now, so at the one end of the spectrum, you have pure congregationalism. At the far end of the other spectrum, you have popery, you know, where you have a pope. And so somewhere in between the two points, there is a balance. Um, some would argue for pure congregationalism from Acts chapter six, where, you know, the disciples are being, you know, ragged at because there's some needs that aren't being met and, And so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Look, uh, God has given us a different calling, not a better calling, a different calling. The disciples could not do what they do. I could not do what I do as a pastor. If I didn't have a team of people gifted in a multiplicity of some, you know, 16 different ways as God gives spiritual gifts in the church to serve with me. It's not a one man show. It's a team effort to pull off a genuine work of God. And so he says, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men. Interestingly, this is, by the way, are the first deacons in the Bible. The office of elder is not a new office. It's taught in the Old Testament. And so it's transferred into the New Testament. And that's why Titus, in one sense, can pick new believers on the island of Creek to be elders. Why? Because they are Old Testament saints who had longed for the Messiah. And then they heard Messiah came and they believed in the Messiah. So in that respect, they were not new believers. And they were not violating that uh, an elder cannot be a new convert. They were Old Testament saints who, uh, whose faith was completed, so to speak, as Jewish men, and in some cases, proselytes. But in either case, the office of deacon was not found in the Old Testament church. So select from among you seven men. Now, interestingly here, the word for men is the Greek word andros, and it's used in deference to a woman. We often see the word man in the Bible, and it's the Greek word anthropos, and it can refer to men and women. So we say all men are sinful. Are we saying just men are sinful and women are not? No, we're speaking of mankind. So some people like to say, well, all people are sinful or whatever. But the point is, is here it's a man in deference to a woman. Why? Because this is a leadership position. These are people who are serving under the authority of the elders, but nonetheless leading seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. And of course, um, the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose certain people and they brought before the apostles, these seven men. So the apostles ultimately as the leaders in the church approved them. 
Um, but here's a fight in the congregation between what we call Hellenistic Jews, those who were Jews who were born and raised outside of Israel and were uh, part of the Greek culture in what we call native Hebrews. Those were Jews who were born and raised in Israel. And of course, when a pious Jew obeyed one of the three feasts that God demanded they come to each year, this feast on this particular year was different because Pentecost really became Pentecost. Pentecost was not a new feast. We think of it as just simply an, uh, a New Testament term, but it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It was the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks, and it was prescribed that a pious Jew be in Israel at the temple 18 and above. And so that gave, of course, the Spirit of God an audience of peoples whose hearts were opened, who wanted to obey. And on the day of Pentecost, you know, 3,000 people were saved in a few short days later. And so what it did is you had all these people. Nobody wanted to leave. Why? Because this is what we had been uh, praying and thinking about for, you know, since the creation of time that God would send a Savior and he would establish the new covenant where he'd put his spirit within us. And what was lost in the Garden of Eden was going to be restored. And so the church had to come together. And so I think it's interesting that he chooses the number seven. If he said six, well, we'll get three Hebrew Jews and three Hellenistic Jews. So you can have an odd number in there. And so they had to come together and they had to work together. And then it ultimately rests with the apostles. So the church is not a democracy. There are leaders in the church who are supposed to lead. And when you give everyone an equal say, new believers, baby Christians who have never grown, carnal Christians, mature Christians, and unbelievers an equal vote, you have a formula for disaster. You have a formula for a church fight. You have a formula for a church split. Look, there are people in our church I could... You know, I can tell you right now, if we, if we had that kind of government, they would create more problems... Uh, create more tension. They've never grown up. And some of them, I don't know that they'll ever grow up. And you have that as a pastor, you know, every pastor I, you know, we, I talk to, you know, we shop talk and that's just part of being a pastor. So I said, get over it, man. There are some people that you, there's nothing you are going to be able to do. And apart from a supernatural intervention of God in their life, they're just going to be whiners and complainers until God takes them home or the rapture happens. And you give those kinds of people a platform in your church to make decisions and you've got a formula for disaster. Some people, they get their feelings hurt just over nothing. And they begin to whine and complain. And they're not really partners in the kingdom of God. And, you know, you can waste your life and time spinning your wheels over them. Or you can do it God's way. So, look, you know, this is a common problem I'm getting from pastors. Some of these guys who call me because there's a whole segment of people at a seminary, a Southern Baptist seminary, who listen to me. They get together. They shop top the sermons. And so I get phone calls from some of these guys they are saying, you know, I'm pastoring this church now. And man, I can't seem to get past square one and all the people, you know, I want to bring in some new ideas and we've never done it this way before. And I said, look. You, you've got one of two choices in this congregational setting. You can either win enough people to Christ where you can outvote the old guard, or you can just go plan a new church. 
but um, you've got to decide what you're going to do and how God's going to allow you to proceed because you can spend the next 20 years putting out fires and do very little for the kingdom of God. Very good. We uh, had a caller who was listening to your message this morning on Search the Scriptures. It was uh, Three Coffins was the title from Genesis chapter 50. And the caller became dismayed that his parents had been cremated. Would you please assure this, dear listener, that it doesn't matter what happened to their remains? Yeah, so it's not a problem in the resurrection. So hear me on this. It is not a problem in the resurrection. Whatever happened to your body, my son-in-law, he um, lost his dad over um, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. He was a a F-16 pilot uh, in the Marine Corps Air Station some years back, and Uh, His jet crashed with another jet, and the two jets were literally, you know, incinerated, and they couldn't find anything but his helmet. Is that a problem for God? Of course not. Uh, Did they ever find a body? No. There's a marker here in the National Cemetery in Beaufort, but there's no body. It's not a problem for God. You see, some people, and we'll come to this very subject when we come towards the end of the Revelation, where John speaks of the great white throne judgment and how God will raise the dead. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. Why does John mention that? Because there was a common first century belief that somehow if you took a body and you put it not in the ground, but you put it in the sea where the fish would eat everything, even the bones, that there was no accountability to God. Um, You could almost say the same thing with the way some people think about cremation. When did cremation start in this country? In the 1870s. First time anyone in America was officially cremated. Who started it? The Unitarians. Uni, they affirmed the oneness of God, but they denied his triunity. And they denied the deity of Christ and salvation by grace, and life after death, and the bodily resurrection. They were just theological liberals. And so to raise their ugly little fists in the face of God and in the face of the Bible-believing evangelicals of their day, they said, we're going to do something that none of you Christians do. We're going to burn the body, and we're going to disintegrate it into nothing. And they thought that somehow, you know, that was clever and it could escape the judgment of God. How sad, how folly that kind of thinking, foolish that kind of thinking is. It's just sheer folly. And God's word is clear that he is going to raise a body up. Whatever has happened to it, I mean, think about it. You could bury the body, and if it's there, you know, 5,000 years, maybe there's nothing left but dust. I know we have, you know, methods, we put it in coffins and sometimes they're made out of metal and uh, we, um, you know, embalm the bodies and do all kinds of things. And, uh, but listen, uh, it's not a problem for God, whatever has happened to the, to the body. But yes, as I brought out in the sermon, I, I didn't listen to the sermon, but I know what I would have said um, is that, yeah, cremation is not God's way. And Christians say, well, you know, it's less costly. I don't care if it's less costly. 
Um, look, buy your coffin through Costco if you need to. Do what Billy Graham did. He had some prisoners made it. You know, you, you, my brother, my brother Kevin made a coffin for a lady. She she was dying, and she had about a year to live, or doctors told her, and he went ahead and made the coffin for her. And it cost about $200 in actual wood, and he did it as an expression of his love for that lady. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to sometimes reduce costs, but do it God's way. God's way is to bury. You know, you go to Israel today, nobody cremates. Why is that? Because of the long-standing history of burial. Everyone in the Bible is buried. And when God himself holds a funeral, he, the Lord, buries Moses. No exceptions. And there is one crematorium that they tried to set up a few years ago in Israel and they uh, ended up some Jewish people burning it down. Hey, they, let me just give you a thought to, to think. Do you think when Uncle Fred is cremated and they go in there and get his ashes and they scoop them up and put them in an urn and give them to you? You think that's all Uncle Fred in that, in that little tray? You think they go in there with a vacuum cleaner? Now, you know, maybe, well, what if they go in with a vacuum pastor? What happened to that part of Uncle Fred? Well, I guess he's in the vacuum cleaner and went in the dumpster. Um, you think they get every ounce of ash out? You, you, look, talk to somebody who does this for a living. You discover that you probably have more than Uncle Fred in that, in that urn. There's, you know, what if they did five cremations in that day? Yeah, they go in there, shovel it out, and sweep it out as best they can. Put in the next, put in Sister Mary now, and you know, Sister Mary and Uncle Fred and, you know, Cousin Bob, and they're, they're all mixed in there in your ash little, ver, you know, container. But again, it's not a problem for God, but what should you do as a Christian? You should do what God says you should bury. Now, people come to me sometimes, oh, Pastor, will you do my funeral? We're going to do cremation. Of course, I'll do your funeral. I love you. You're a member of my church. I'm going to do your funeral. But if you're going to ask me what I think is right, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that God's way is burial. All right, we've got someone who's waiting on the line. Maybe we lost them. So let's go to the next call. Well, we've only got about a minute and 20 seconds left. So... Um, anything well, you want to promote? Well, yeah. So we're doing a course uh, on biblical parenting right now on Wednesday evenings. Every week stands on its own. Uh, if you can't physically be there, maybe you're putting little ones to bed, you could live stream us as all of our services are live streamed at communitybiblechurch.us. But it is tomorrow night, Wednesday at 6.30. We have a ministry for the children, children's choirs, which is a powerful tool that God is using as the children learn godly music. I need to tell this to Matt, but a little girl came down just for the service a few weeks ago, and I said, well, tell me, how did you become a Christian? She said, well, you know, this song we were learning in choir, it just kept going through my mind and going through my mind. And I realized that I wasn't a Christian and I needed Christ as my Savior. And I've already met with her, and yeah, she crossed the line. Music's powerful. So we have choirs for your kids, and uh, we have an in-depth Bible study uh, on biblical parenting. What does it really look like? We're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. Have a good day as you walk with Christ.